1: we got a great show coming up for you this morning, including BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth standing by. He's my first guest today, the province's top law enforcement officer. We'll talk about a spike in crime during this pandemic at the bottom of the hour with our visit with Keith Baldry, Baldry's Beat. We're going to break down the highlights of yesterday's COVID-19 BC update, the latest numbers, the latest concerns. Quick plug for tomorrow's show, tomorrow at 10 a.m., Federal Conservative leader Andrew Sheer on the federal response to the virus. Just confirm that with his people, Andrew Sheer, tomorrow on the show at 10 a.m. Right now, though, let's talk to B.C. Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, Minister. Thank you for coming on.
2: My pleasure. Good morning.
1: Good morning to you. Okay, let's talk about the apparent crime spike we're witnessing here in this pandemic. We've seen lots of reports about an increase in break-ins in in downtown Vancouver and other cities too. I mean, we're hearing about crime waves in Victoria. Uh, Kelowna property crimes, right? Like break-ins. Are you concerned?
2: Yeah, always concerned whenever these kinds of uh, 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 crimes are taking place, and uh, the police uh, are uh, recognizing that, given the current situation uh, and seeing this spike, they are they are doubly aware uh, in terms of of, of the need to, to to be vigilant, and they're out doing their job. Uh, you know uh, that they're supposed to be doing.
1: Yeah, and are you getting any? any concerns from police chiefs around the province that maybe their resources might be stretched here, especially if some of their people start getting sick or anything?
2: Uh, I know that all police forces, whether they're RCMP or municipal police forces, have plans in place to deal with uh, the issues around uh, COVID-19 uh, to ensure that uh, you know they're able to, to meet uh, the, the demands of their job. And they're doing a, a, a terrific job so far. And I've not heard uh, directly, that there are significant challenges, but that's why I said they've got plans in place to prepare for these kinds of these kinds of situations, and those plans are implemented.
1: Okay, are you concerned about escalating crime as as this thing drags on? And is there a plan in place to bolster resources if, if that's what happens?
2: Well, we're obviously concerned, and it, and, and and it's monitored on a, on a day to day. Uh, uh, basis, uh, and it, it comes down to, in many cases, as we all know, uh, crime, uh, many of these kinds of crimes, these sorts of breaking and enterings, and, and, uh, are, are crimes of opportunity, and yeah. so uh, one of the key messages that law enforcement uh, is getting out, and that, uh, you know, as, as myself as Solicitor General getting out, is, is for people to be vigilant, uh, is uh, just because you're at home, for example, you don't leave the, uh, the window open or the door unlocked. Uh, make sure that, uh, you know, you lock your doors, you don't leave your car unlocked, um, that it's locked. You don't leave things in the back of the car for people that can, you know, take advantage of a, of, a, of a crime of opportunity or a momentary lapse.
1: Some of these crimes are disgusting. Like we saw reports last night in the Global News Hour with a, a police sting operation catching people trying to resell surgical masks. I mean, this is like about as low as you can go. And then we had a report yesterday about... Thieves ripping off catalytic converters from ambulances. Ambulances. This is unbelievable. Here's a, here's a short clip, uh, Minister, from the uh, Chris uh, Lakoff from Delta Police on that.
3: This is very disappointing to see. Uh, so this occurred uh, sometime between the evening of March 26th to the morning of March 31st. And it appears a hole was cut into a fence to gain access to the ambulances that were parked at a business um, for maintenance purposes. Uh, The business is on Anasis Island. And uh, after gaining access uh, to the uh, fenced area, the suspect then cut the catalytic converters off these ambulances. So it's a really frustrating crime and particularly upsetting to see someone targeting ambulances at this time.
1: Mike Farnworth, what do you say about these, these type of crimes, ripping, you know, damaging ambulances, people reselling surgical masks? What's your message?
2: Okay, two things. First off, we take both those kinds of situations very seriously. In terms of the catalytic converters, if you're caught, you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And in terms of the the reselling of uh, of medical equipment. It is absolutely reprehensible that during the, kind, the time of a pandemic, you have people trying to take advantage of a situation when thousands of Canadians, businesses right across this province and across this country are stepping up to make sure we've got this, this, this critical healthcare equipment that are frontline workers in the healthcare system, that are frontline workers in our grocery stores, in other areas of, 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 of uh, interface between the public uh, and the people uh, keeping us all, all moving forward is taking yeah. place. That's why uh, an order was in place that that spelled out that, it's, uh, that it is illegal and cannot be done. Uh, and we will not tolerate it. We will absolutely not tolerate it. And people engaged in that can expect significant, severe consequences.
1: Oh, okay, has anybody faced any consequences for anything? Like, has anybody been charged? Has anybody been fined? Has anybody been put behind bars? No. I mean, I love the way you're talking tough. It's great. I love it. But is anybody, is the hammer actually coming yeah? At, Look, as these
2: things uh, occur and are found to be happening, uh, such as what you outlined uh, in terms of the selling of the surgical masks, those are investigated and then decisions are made. Uh, in the case of the, uh, of, of the reselling of equipment and violations of the Provincial Health Act, then uh, the, the ability to, to levy fines is uh, done by the provincial, uh, under the authority of the Provincial Health uh, Officer. Uh, in terms of the kind of criminal activity that you saw, that you mentioned, around, for example, catalytic converters. The police do their job, they investigate, they go to Crown, mm-hmm. and then and then, and then charges um, are, can be laid. And we okay. expect is, is that a, charges is that no, to be laid.
1: Is, is that a no then? There's been no charges yet? I'm of not stuff.
2: aware of, of, of charges at this point, and they don't okay. necessarily come to me because those are laid by, by uh, those are determined by Crown Council. But okay. the bottom line is this, if you're yeah. engaged in this...
1: Don't think you're going to get away with it,
2: and don't think um, that it's something that uh, we turn a blind eye to, because we don't, and the police most certainly don't.
1: Minister, I know you got a busy morning. Last question for you: You're in charge of the police system or the, uh, the the prison system in our province, provincial jails. We've heard calls for people to uh, the concerns about this potential spread of COVID-19 behind bars and in prisons. Some people think that non-violent prisoners should be released to reduce the risk of spread of COVID-19 in jails. Your thoughts?
2: Well, first off, there are plans in place in all our correction facilities across the province, just as there are across the rest of the country, in terms of minimizing the spread of COVID by, uh, COVID-19 into correction facilities, keeping uh, the inmates safe, keeping corrections officers safe, and keeping uh, the local communities where those are safe. Uh, as in other provinces, we are uh, looking at, in particular, around those uh, individuals who have been sentenced to serve their time on weekends uh, to suspend uh, that uh, the requirement to serve that time while this uh, pandemic uh, is underway, uh, and as long as there is a history of, of nonviolence, then... Um, that, uh, that then those individuals would not have to serve uh, that intermittent sentence uh, during this particular time. Once it's over, obviously, they, they have to continue uh, but, serving their, their sentence.
1: But if, we, this, if we're already seeing a spike in property crime, do you, take the, do you run the risk of more property crime if you let these guys out?
2: The individual, first off, they're serving intermittent sentences. So they're only serving their sentences on weekends. Uh, this is being done in every single jurisdiction right across the country and at the federal level in terms of regards to intermittent sentences. It's based on an assessment of the individual and the particular circumstance by which they find themselves there. So obviously anybody who's engaged uh, in, in, in violence, for example, would not, be, would not be eligible. But the critical thing is, is to ensure that we don't have COVID virus spreading into our, into our corrections facilities because then you've got an even bigger problem. Uh, and intermittent sentences is is one of the ways in which is one of the chief, or <coughs> sorry, is one of the ways in which the uh, the virus can get into our correction facilities.
1: Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. All right, welcome back as we continue our coverage and analysis of COVID-19 with my guest, Keith Baldry, Global BC Bureau Chief. It's Baldry's Beat. Keith, thanks a lot for coming in again. Great to be here, Smitty. Let's start with yesterday's update on the pandemic and Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday expressing some concern about Canadians coming home and whether they could spread the virus here if they don't self-isolate. Here's Dix.
2: There can be no ambiguity anymore, if there ever was, about people's obligations when they get home. No ambiguity as to uh, people's responsibility to self-isolate. No ambiguity about the need for the Quarantine
1: Act in Canada to be enforced at the airport. It's the law. You've got to self-isolate when you come back. And I guess we got, you know, you had a lot of Canadians overseas, and I know you got some numbers on that. And then you got the spring breakers coming back, uh, the snowbirds coming back. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of Canadians potentially returning and a lot of them coming into YVR.
4: 420,000 Canadians abroad are registered with uh, the government of being uh, potentially people flying back to Canada. Uh, uh, Not all of them are coming through YVR. There's four entry points right now, Pearson in Toronto, uh, Montreal, uh, Calgary, and YVR. And I talked to Adrian Dix about this yesterday. He's quite concerned about this, that you've got literally hundreds of thousands of people about to come into Canada who have been in other countries where COVID-19 is potentially rampant. And... The question is, are they going to be relied upon themselves to self-isolate, or should there be more forcible measures taken? Should they be actually forced to go to a hotel, uh, wow. commandeered by the federal government? Most hotels are closed right now. They're empty. There's not nobody staying there. Do they go to a hotel in Richmond, right, off, right outside YVR? So, uh. You mean like the- they're
1: marched there to a hotel
4: by a, by a border official and said, <laughs> go to your room and don't come out? The Prime Minister this morning was asked several times about this. He says they, there will be measures taken to quarantine people, but it's unclear exactly what those measures are. But make no mistake, Adrian Dix is quite concerned about this, that there have to be strong forceful measures. Again, YVR, we've got a, we're sending a crew out there today to check on the signage. but yeah. there's many people who English is not their first language. Uh, again, what what will they be told when they arrive here? Will they be told just go home, or can they be trusted to go home and, and self isolate? So there's this is another big milestone in this pandemic. Is this literally? Uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming back to Canada and are they going to be uh, self-isolated or can they be trusted to be self
1: There's lots of anecdotal stories out there about this kind of stuff. Like I get emails and I know you do too from people like, oh, my neighbor just got back from Mexico and he's going yeah. to the grocery store and stuff. And, y- you know, I mean, I guess...
4: What do you do about that? Have you set up a snitch line so people can report yeah, their I've, neighbors? We've asked uh, Adrian Dixon, Bonnie Henry about that uh, snitch line. They're not going there. They uh, they really think that that can be counterproductive. Uh, I got an email from. You're right. I got an email last night. I read on the air, actually, from a, a retired couple in Duncan. Who were quite concerned because their neighbors had just got back from Thailand, and uh, did not. Um, and we're not self-isolating because they said, "Well, I'm not showing any symptoms, so I don't have to self-isolate." That's not oh, the rule. That is not the rule. No, not not the rule. The rule. no you no. got to self-isolate. Automatically, doesn't self-isolate.
1: matter if you got no. When you come back to Canada, it doesn't matter if nope. you're symptom-free. You must.
4: You must self-isolate. You must quarantine. Yep. And uh, and so many people have this virus right now, but are um what are what's called uh, asymptomatic? They're not showing any symptoms, but you, that doesn't mean you don't have the virus, and that's why you've got to self-isolate. Okay, let's uh, listen to Bonnie
1: Henry here, the Provincial Health Officer, and here she is talking about nursing homes.
3: really reflects the challenging situation when you have uh, transmission ongoing in a facility and the importance of catching these really early. How many nurse? How
1: many care homes now? 21. 21 wow. care
4: homes. That goes up every day. It's gone up two a day for the last uh, few days. The concern in care homes is, first of all, the people in there are the most vulnerable to this virus in terms yeah. of mortality. Uh, that's the evidence so far. Um, the other issue is most of these care homes have only one person in the facility uh, testing positive for the virus, and in many cases, it's a healthcare worker, which is not facing necessarily the same mortality rate. As is it the is it person.
1: often a healthcare worker who works exclusively in that home, well, or now, is it one of these workers that work at multiple homes that we've heard about? Well,
4: the public order has been that nobody can work in multiple homes anymore. You're not supposed to be. Doing is that it. being that, enforced now? It is. Be, uh, my understanding is being enforced. It wasn't the order some weeks ago. Keep in mind, yeah. this is a 14-day incubation period for the virus. So it, it, the fear is the virus has been in care homes for some time now, and it's just starting to present itself. I've talk, talk, Again, talking to Adrian Nix yesterday, he says it's you can contain the virus in a care home if only one person has it. Once you get to two or three people, that can suddenly mushroom to a much bigger figure. And that's what we saw in Lynn Valley. That's what we've seen in Harrow Park. Between those two care homes, there are 130 people tested positive per, for that virus, both patients, both uh, residents, Just in two places, just in two places, yeah. both residents and care workers in those two care homes. So that's 130 out of 1,066 cases are in those two care homes. That's how serious that outbreak. So what the can the government?
1: Can what can the government do about this? I mean, Bonnie Henry kind of flagging this yesterday as a key concern for her. What, what is the response to that concern? Well, they,
4: they've got care homes on, on basically on lockdown. Uh, yeah. You're not supposed to go into them. Care workers can only work in one home. You can can't go between t- two facilities, but right. there are inevitably cracks and in the system. And the testing,
1: system. and this is where the testing is going a on A lot too. of testing goes yeah. on in
4: the care homes, um, but there are inevitably cracks in the system. This is not a foolproof uh, s- system we've got going on. Nobody has a foolproof system. So there will be cracks and the fear is one little crack in a care home and suddenly you've got a, a, a an outbreak that's quite significant. What
1: about the numbers yesterday, the number of new cases, the percentage, the percentage increase, the number of hospitalizations, how's that looking?
4: Yeah, somewhat encouraging. 53 new cases yesterday, on top of a 1,013. So that's you know five um, percent, and that's not that's not bad considering at the very so beginning of the So that's
1: Is that flattening the curve? It is, this flattening. is what they're looking
4: for, right? Yeah, the, at the beginning of the outbreak, we were at 24 percent a day overnight. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, if we were still at that rate right now, we'd be over 2,000 cases, and we're at 1,066. So that's what they.
1: That's kind of classic flattening curve, isn't it? I mean, you you anticipate the numbers go up, they're just not going up as steeply.
4: Yeah. They, they, yeah. they will continue to go up it's whether they go up uh as you say the trajectory yeah. uh is the key thing here yeah. the other number ICU cases which are the really important ones these are people on ventilators uh 67 people in ICU uh, that was a jump of 5 i think from the day before so that's not horrible uh 142 i believe in hospital which was an increase of 14 over the day before so again that's not that's not Matching the the worst case scenario. Keep in mind, Adrian Dix has cleared out more than four thousand beds in the acute care system, uh, anticipating the absolute worst, and we're far, far, far from that right now.
1: Let's talk about. I just interviewed Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General. I think you heard. I think you heard yep. a bit of that. And um, one of the things we got into was uh, the spike in crime, whether the cops have got enough resources to deal with potential increase in property crime and break-ins. But another thing we got into was, you know, these disgusting crimes of like people reselling black market surgical masks mm-hmm. and what kind of penalties are in place for that and i thought global news did a really good story last night uh with your reporter paul johnson there on a sting operation in richmond mm-hmm. that caught this guy red-handed reselling these surgical masks and we got a bit of a, a clip from that story let's listen to it now
0: looks like you're selling masks we'll leave it to you to come up with the words to characterize what's happening here
4: you've been texting with me for the last couple of days yeah sure right yeah so you're caught these are city of richmond bylaw officers tuesday confiscating a shipment of a thousand masks that they'd allegedly arranged to buy from a richmond man in a sting operation
1: okay a thousand masks. they catch the guy red-handed he gets a thousand dollar fine
4: yeah is that adequate like well i heard your your caller a woman said she can get fined twenty five hundred dollars if her dog you know goes to the bathroom in the wrong park yeah uh, a thousand
1: not, bucks—that's nothing.
4: I don't think a thousand dollars for someone like that. Thousand dollars—I don't think—is—is is much of a, a, a motivation. It's like a buck a mask, your, yeah, to change your behavior. But uh, the, the trick is going to be enforcing some of these rules. Again, I, I go back to that couple who emailed me yesterday about their situation in Duncan. They contacted the the local public health office. They contacted the health authority. They contacted. Uh, a number of officials to take action against this this other family that would come back from Thailand refused to self isolate, and finally they got through to the RCMP who paid a visit to this family, and now they're self isolating. But that just shows you how much work goes into potentially enforcing some of these rules. So it's. Uh, Do you it's- think
1: Farnworth should be tougher? Like Farnworth talks a good game, and when he was on here, he was he was talking tough. But I tried to pin him down, like exactly how you know you sounds great, like you know you're talking tough game. But are you backing it up? Like, how many? What? Are, how many people have been charged? How many people been fined? How many people are going to jail?
4: Well, I think part of the problem right now is we've never been through something like this ever before. So there's no standard of, of behavior in terms of enforcement. So city bylaw officers are being asked to take to use powers now they never had before. I'm not sure they know how to use those powers. If you if you think of it, a bylaw officer is worried about your dog license or your parking. Yeah. Or now your,
1: suddenly he's trying to bust. uh yeah, You know, black market uh, medical supply yeah, get, so. The
4: guy we had on Global last night I thought was pretty good. He was pretty forceful saying, no, yeah. you're, we're shutting you down. You're caught. But, but uh, again, this is a whole new uh, avenue of behavior that we've never been down before. Baldry's Beat with
1: my guest, Keith Baldry from Global News. Taking your calls to him, 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free in your cell. Hi, John.
5: This is a gift card. Hello, John. Hey, how you doing?
1: Good. Good. Go ahead. So
2: here, here's my take. Rather than trying to uh, punish these people with a monetary fine, why don't we just put these uh, so, uh, so-called criminals on the front line with the uh, uh, health care workers and also take their ICBC privileges away. Like, take their car away, take their insurance away, take their freedom away, and that might get the message sent home. And the other thing is if the uh, Premier, on a different note, Oregon is trying to do is... Uh, stop price gouging. Does
4: that include ICBC? Thank you very much.
1: Okay, thank you for the call. Well, let's talk reality on what the government could do. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. we're not, not going to start throwing people in jail necessarily right, on, on some of the stuff. And these, so far, these are just isolated examples of, of misbehavior. We caught one on Glo- <clears throat> Global News Hour last night, but it doesn't mean necessarily that that's rampant out there. Though I noticed you had a caller phone in and say that if you go to Facebook, certain sites, there's all sorts of of um, illegal activity going on in There's terms, no, of no, I have no doubt it's going on. Yeah. I mean I, that shouldn't shock anybody
1: that people are trying to profiteer off of this thing. I think you have to. I think a, the question is, you know, how how aggressively are they policing it? How many people are they catching, and what kind of consequences? Like a thousand dollar fine to me is not adequate.
4: No, a thousand dollars seems low, but I'm not sure how much resources are going to be allocated to policing something like this right now. Resources on a number of fronts are going to be uh, an issue uh, in all sorts of aspects of fighting this this pandemic, and I'm not sure we're going to suddenly put hundreds of people into enforcing bans on selling masks and and activities like that. So it's a, but again we're in a whole different world here. We've never been through this before, and uh, different things are going to be tried. Star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. Hi Doug. Hi Mike. How are you
6: doing? Congratulations on your new show. Um, Thank you. That low life that they had there in the Richmond uh, parking lot last night, uh, make one good, big, fast example of him. Yeah. He loses his car. That's the last he sees. But a wacko was about 5000 bucks, If he doesn't want to come up with that, we'll give him a little uh, little time behind the Crowbar Hotel. And and that way, uh, they'll, everybody will see right there on uh, primetime news. This is what happens, jerk. If you get caught with uh, this kind of an action going on in the parking lot, uh, this is what you're going to get if you get caught.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the call. Well, I don't. You know, maybe that sounds like a more reasonable response. Like, okay, five thousand dollar fine. Okay, now you're talking. And if the guy is selling medical masks out of the trunk of his car. Maybe you do confiscate the car because the car is being used in in the uh, in In the the commission of
4: a commission of a crime. Yeah, Mike Farnworth, the public safety minister, has the power under the Emergency Program Act to really crack down on people with uh, extraordinary uh, measures. Doctor Bonnie Henry is the public health officer; she can uh, bring in orders as well. I mean, these right now in this situation, we're in a state of emergency. People in those authority positions have significant power in in determining the punishment of people who violate certain orders.
1: Like, people were going after, I had an earlier caller saying, Farnworth is full of hot air. And I did try to challenge him when he was on, saying, like, okay, what you're saying sounds great, but how are you backing it up? And, I don't know, what's your perception of Farnworth and his determination to, to, to actually crack down on this stuff? Like, I think that, I actually think Farnworth is pretty tough on this stuff. I mean, he does talk a good game, but, you know, back it up.
4: Yeah, no, know. I talk to Farmworth all the time about this. He, he is genuinely, um, angered uh, right from the, from day one. These, these uh, pictures and, and video footage of people hoarding, uh, stockpiling purchases. Uh, I know he's per- personally quite angered by that. But again, not sure exactly how you police this, what type of resources you put into policing something like this. A lot of it is public shaming. I've noticed, uh, last few times I've been to a supermarket and I don't go that often anymore. You don't see—I don't see a lot of people with huge shopping carts right now in terms of bulk bulk purchases. I think there's a bit of public shaming going on right now of people who do this, and maybe that's a more effective method than uh, necessarily throwing people in jail.
1: Okay, Do we got another caller there, Greg, or no? I thought we had one more. Okay, where do we go from here? What's we got? Another uh, update coming this afternoon.
4: Yeah, I would be interested to see what the number is. It was 53 yesterday, which was about 5%, and we'll see if that number is exceeded. Keep an eye on the ICU numbers, 67 yesterday. Those are the people in the most serious condition. Uh, again, we'll see from Minister Dix today whether there's any more details on his concern about cracking down on travelers. And let, uh, let, keep, keep an eye on hospitalizations. Let
1: me ask you this, uh, Bonnie, real quickly, in the minute we got left, because we're going to talk about this in the next segment, and that's whether you should be wearing a, a mask, speaking of masks, if you're healthy... Mm. And you, should you wear a mask going to the grocery store, like yeah. even like a homemade mask? And Bonnie Henry kind of uh,
4: chimed in on that yesterday. What did she say? She was a, she's now a little more supportive of people wearing masks yeah. uh, because it's it's not to protect yourself from the virus. You're not going to protect yourself wearing a homemade. And again, these are homemade masks. These are not masks that are designed for healthcare workers. My I held one up on the news last night. Made my my wife Anne. Uh, she's she made, made a mask. She's made several of those. So do you uh, wear it now when you go to the grocery store? I haven't worn it yet. I haven't been to a grocery store for a couple days now, but uh, I probably will. Because, again, it doesn't protect you from getting the virus, but it can prevent you from spreading the virus. And And this is where we get back to asymptomatic. Again, you and I right now... Could have the virus, but we're not showing any symptoms, and we're called that could be an asymptomatic case, but we could still spread the well, that's virus. That's why we're distancing. That's why we're distancing okay. in this cramped little broom closet. We're still eight okay. feet apart. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. All right, see you tomorrow. That's
1: Keith Baldry, and um, if you didn't get
3: through on the open line, phone me in the buzz line. If you're are going to wear them. It can help reduce the droplets that you shed into the environment. And if somebody is infected and has mild symptoms or um, early on in the illness, it can prevent you from putting those droplets out. And that's probably okay. Um, But it's not, you can't use it in isolation and think that it's going to protect you and that you no longer need to do things like cleaning your hands regularly or maintaining those physical distance.
1: All right. Welcome back, Mike Smith. That is the voice of Dr. Bonnie Henry, the province's provincial health officer, Uh, speaking about the use of surgical masks or homemade masks. And you see people wearing these all the time. If You go out to the grocery store or just walk down the street. Some people will be wearing a mask. Some people not wearing a mask. Let's get into this debate now about whether you should use one at all. I'm I'm looking at the World Health Organization website on this right now. It says if you are healthy, you only need to wear a mask if you're taking care of someone who's infected. Wear a mask if you are coughing or sneezing. So if if you're healthy, do you need to wear a mask? Lots of people do. Let's check in with Ian Young now. He's a Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. He's been looking into this. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming on. Hi there, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Where do you stand on this mask debate? Pro mask or anti mask?
6: Um, don't buy masks. Masks work. Um, you know, that sounds like <laughs> that's a confusing statement, I guess, for a lot of Canadians. But I mean, the upshot is that uh, no matter what the WHO says currently in its advice, it doesn't really matter what Theresa Tam says in her advice. Theresa Tam being the um, chief public health officer.
1: For, yeah, she's the federal health officer yeah, sure. what, is, what does she say
6: she she said on monday um you know very clearly that putting a putting a mask on an asymptomatic person is not beneficial right, right. you know and, and i mean i think that's that's kind of preposterous i mean it, it flies in the face of her own statements which were that you know, that um, face masks are absolutely needed. They're critically important if um, you're trying to protect a frontline healthcare worker. Now, I understand where that's coming from because Theresa Tam doesn't want you to go out and buy face masks. That is absolutely a correct position. But at the same time, it is ridiculous to say that face masks don't work.
1: Right, because, okay, let's say you are asymptomatic, as they say, you're not displaying any symptoms but that doesn't mean you don't have the virus. So maybe you do have it, but you're not symptomatic at the moment. Like if you're wearing a face mask in the grocery store, are well, you potentially saving someone else from catching it from you?
6: For sure. I mean, I, I, I think the face mask wearing is not a selfish act. I mean, face mask wearing is, um, you know, a, a, a caring act for the rest of the community and not spreading your potential disease. Now, once again, don't, don't buy face masks. That is not the, the, the issue here. The issue here is whether or not face masks work. And Canadians are taking matters into their own hands by making their own face masks, which probably um, don't have the same efficacy as a commercial medical face mask, but it's better than nothing. And uh, even the US CDC acknowledges this, you know, the Centers for Disease Control, on the one hand, it's telling people not to go out and you know, don't buy face masks because they don't work for the general public. But on the other hand, they're telling medical workers that if you can't get a clean face mask, use a dirty face mask. If you can't use a dirty face mask, use a scarf or bandana to protect yourself against COVID-19. So once again, there are these big contradictions. And I think the general public is quickly becoming aware um, that a lot of this confusing advice is, is, is quite frankly illogical.
1: Okay, do you wear one when you go out?
6: Uh, I have. Um, I've worn them to a supermarket. Um, I've worn them um, out reporting. But generally, uh, if I'm out on the street, no, I don't wear them. But in an enclosed place like a supermarket, yes, I do. Um, I wore one um, to Sandy Farm Market in uh, uh just a couple of days ago. Um, I'd hasten to add, this is not a face mask that I bought here in Canada. What this was, this is a face mask that I actually had left over from 17 years ago when I I was in Hong Kong um, uh, as an editor involved with our SARS quarantine team in Hong Kong. So I'm I'm covering myself like that. Uh, And if I didn't have those very old face masks to cover my face, I'd do it with a scarf or a bandana, just as the CDC advises doctors to do.
1: Okay. You spent a lot of t- a lot of years in Hong Kong, as you mentioned there, as a, as a correspondent there. Do you think there's um, kind of a cultural issue around wearing face masks? That, in, I guess typically we've seen Asian people more likely to wear a mask. Is that fair to say? But I, I think more and more people are wearing masks.
6: Absolutely. I think more and more people here in Vancouver, certainly. But, you know, for, for many East Asian societies, face mask wearing has been normal for a long time, and particularly in Hong Kong, you know. Um, uh, SARS very much normalized face mask wearing it's, a, it's seen as a, a, a socially responsible thing to do and right now in Hong Kong it is seen as a very socially unacceptable thing to do to step outside um, without a face mask on. Without
1: a mask right right so what are the risks of it though like I, I imagine that maybe one of the reasons that you see the federal medical health officer taking the position that they have or, or we see other public health officers saying like you know These masks are are not going to, don't work for you. They're not going to help stop you from getting the virus. So maybe it's not a good idea to wear them. I think a couple issues. One is that, does it potentially give you a false sense of security? Like if you're wearing a mask, now you might think, well, it's okay for me to go outside more often. It's okay for me to be near someone or socialize with someone because now I'm protected from this mask. But you've got a false sense of security.
6: Oh, look, right now, face masks are not a substitute for physical distancing. That, I mean, just get yeah. that out of the road right now. Um, and in any case, we don't have the supply of face masks to make it a substitute for physical distancing. And you can, you know, you can, we're turning out all these sewing circles and craft circles to try and make homemade masks. But realistically, that's not the long term solution. The long term solution to an absence of face masks is face mask factories. You know, I mean, there is uh, this is such a confusing issue for a lot of people, but I don't think it really is confusing scientifically because the weight of scientific evidence is that face masks work in a variety of contexts. Um, You know, and I think that Canadians ultimately are going to have to come around to to the idea that this might be a way to maintain a semblance of normal life in the long term. You know, this is not... We're not talking right now um, while we have this shortage of face masks and while we must abide by physical distancing. But in the long term, this is something that needs to be considered.
1: Talking to Ian Young about the face mask debate, I, th- I think you're right about the confusion out there, Ian, because you do hear a lot of sort of conflicting advice, uh, including from the experts. Let- let's just play a little clip here. This Here's um, Dr. Sanjay Gupta talking to CNN about face masks.
0: I think what is, what is really uh, driving this is this idea that there is, uh, you know, significant community spread of this virus. That's important because we know that there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic, you know, don't really have symptoms, that can still spread the virus. So the way to think about this mask issue is that it's not really still for people who are not infected. This is more for people who might be infected and don't know it and to try and lower the likelihood that they will spread this to somebody else first advice for anybody is to stay home. But if somebody does need to go out, and look, anybody might be infected and not know it, we all have to behave like we have the virus. Uh, I think that is what's driving the idea that if you have to go out for something essential, that wearing a mask may not be a bad idea. Okay,
1: I I suspect you agree with him.
6: I think that's excellent advice. I mean, we do have to behave like everyone has this virus. Um, You know, there was a particularly terrifying case that was outlined recently um um about this choir that was in washington where 60 people turned up for choir practice you know none of those people had coughs or sneezes none of them were symptomatic they all um abided by some form of physical distancing they didn't touch each other they hand sanitized and yet 45 of them fell ill with covid19 or suspected covid19 three of them are in hospital two of them are dead So these sort of um, nightmare cases of asymptomatic transmission really should serve as a wake-up call to people who are still, um, you know, uh, behaving as if they do not have the virus simply because they do not feel like they have the virus.
7: We don't
1: know. Mike Smith, as we continue talking about masks, should you wear them when you go out? If you're feeling healthy, you don't have any symptoms? My guest is Ian Young from the South China Morning Post. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Tell me what you think about this. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Vince on the open line. Hey, Vince.
5: Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Um, So my sister lives in southern Italy, and and no one, and it hasn't hit as hard as northern Italy, but no one there is allowed out without a mask and gloves like you go out without a mask and glove and everybody looks at you funny so you know their their thing is you you protect me i protect you so everybody wears masks and gloves and i truly believe that's our future here right now that's going to be coming extremely quickly
1: okay did you say your sister is in italy
5: yeah she lives in sicily
1: Okay, what 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 are kind of what is she telling you? What is what is her life like?
5: So they're in total quarantine. They get they get a window to go shopping once a week. Um, they cannot go into the store without without protective uh, mask and gloves. Wow! Everybody in the store works that way. There's three people. Out. They're not a big town, so only three people are allowed in the store to grocery shop at a time. When those three come out. The next three go in. Yeah. Everything gets wiped down. New checker comes in. So it's really strict. It's extremely strict. So if
1: you if you show up at the store without a mask on, what happens? They turn no, you don't away. Go in. Yeah.
5: No, no, no mask, no gloves, no service. Okay, Vince,
1: thank you for the call. I Hope your sister stays safe over there in, in Italy. Ian, what do you think of that?
6: Yeah, well, I, I don't think we're actually that far off. Um, some of those measures. Here in Vancouver, I mean, Sandy Farm Market in Keristyle certainly won't, won't, will not allow you into the shop unless you've got a face mask on. Um, you know, I mean, Price mark in in um, in, in Richmond—that's um, a very very large supermarket. But they've got basically a bouncer on the door who is uh, counting the number of people going into the store and counting the number of people going out, so that there's only a certain number of people in the supermarket at any one time, and that's a very big supermarket. Um, so these are private businesses that are taking those matters into their own hands, and I think quite rightly too. Um, I think down at Richmond, um, uh, people have been wearing face masks. For a couple of months and now um, if you'll cast your mind back to, to January or even February uh, people were looking at that uh, uh, as sort of a, a matter of you know derision or at least confusion um, because they saw that this was an, a, some sort of overreaction and now of course um, that stance by the Chinese community in Richmond is being seen as rather prescient about where we're actually at now
1: Taking your calls on face masks, 604-280-9898 is the number to call, star 9898, toll free in your cell. Heather on the open line, hi.
3: Hello? Hi there. Am I on?
1: Yes, you are, go ahead.
3: Yeah okay hi uh, yeah I did call into Charles Adler last night uh, complaining about this because he had someone uh, uh, some medical person on from Maple Ridge uh, suggesting that uh, these masks were no good unless they're N95. Uh, I've been making these masks. They are easy to find patterns online, but it's uh, very important that you kind of look around at the what there is. I've been using three layers of cotton, and I've been making a little pocket with one of the layers to put either a HEPA filter from a used. An not a use, but a, a vacuum cleaner bag, and I've also ordered some melt-blown fabric, which apparently is quite effective as well. They're not N95 masks but it's like somebody said, I protect you, you protect me, and this is what we're going to have to think about right now. People want to get back to work. This is not this is not replaced social distancing by any means, but yeah. it's got to be a help, and what really bothers me the most is my sister, who's 70 years old and vulnerable because she has COPD, asked her doctor about this the other day and was told, flat out, do not wear a mask because it is not going to help you. Well, I could be asymptomatic and anybody, as we're hearing now, and be out in the community and be passing on things to people um, who, who are vulnerable, you know? And, I mean, I just came from Costco. They've got very good controls in there, but the fact of the matter is, we have to be able to go out. We have to do what we have to do, and while we're keeping our distance, we need these masks. It's it, it it just needs to be uh, right. become a norm, become a social norm, just like picking up dog poop. As there's a video go- uh-huh. or, uh, YouTube thing. We didn't used to do that. We do it now. You know, Heather.
1: So- Heather, thank you for a great call. I, I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy. Her point there, Ian, about c- comparing a homemade mask to a a medical grade N95 mask. And the N95 is like a very close fitting facial mask with a filtration um component to it and obviously a homemade mask is not the same as an n95 but we've got a minute left here is a a homemade mask is going to be better than nothing
6: absolutely it's better than nothing it's better than your elbow which is what we're currently advised to use i mean it's as simple as that the idea that 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 um you know you can sneeze into your elbow and that's good medical advice but face masks hey who knows you know that seems kind of ridiculous
1: ian where can where can people uh find your stuff online
6: uh, yeah, no, I'm at the South China Morning Post. I write the Konger blog, so Google either of those and you'll find me.
1: Ian, stay healthy, healthy and safe out there. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. That's Ian Young, and appreciate his time today. Welcome back to the show. Mike Smith with you as we continue our focus and coverage and analysis on the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's take a look at some of the government supports for people and businesses that have been rolled out by both levels of government. I'll tell you what, it's, it's tough to keep track of a lot of this stuff. Uh, it's a jungle out there, really. With there's been so many programs and rollouts here over the last couple of weeks, including uh, they just came uh, come every single day. Just announced by the BC government here. This is just out. BC's most vulnerable citizens, people on income or disability assistance. So we're talking about disabled British Columbians, low-income British Columbians, low-income seniors, uh, in line for uh, assistance here. With uh, money uh, coming in and committed by the government, including a three hundred monthly a three hundred dollar a month COVID nineteen crisis supplement for the next three months. Let's talk about the government's both levels of government's response to this crisis now with our panel. Alex Hemingway is an economist and public finance policy analyst with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Alex, nice to have you on again.
0: Good morning.
1: Thanks for doing it. Werner Antweiler is a associate professor at Sauder School of Business and Economics. Uh, UBC Werner thank you uh,
8: good morning Mike thank you for having me on your program
1: thank you gentlemen for both of you Alex let me go to you first I mean I, I follow you on Twitter and you've been doing a really close sort of daily analysis on a lot of the the government uh, assistance and relief packages as they come out and I know I know in some cases you think they're inadequate right but what do you think about what the BC government has rolled out here this morning with assistance to uh, low income and disabled British Columbians
0: Yeah, certainly there are gaps, but you you really have to give credit and and BC is is leading the pack in terms of the provincial response uh, in a whole number of areas. Uh, in terms of those income assistance announcements this morning, as you say, we're talking about a $300 uh, supplement for, for folks on income assistance on disability. Uh, those rates, of course, are, are extremely low to begin with. So if you're a single person on income assistance, you were uh, uh, bringing in $760 a month. You know, you just can't live on that in, in this province. So it, it's, it's really important uh, that we're seeing this supplement. Uh, uh, needless to say, we would go even further, but uh, certainly credit where uh, due. BC's way ahead on, on this, and, so, and that $300 is going to be important.
1: So you mean it was 760 a month before this, and so now it'll be $1,060? Uh,
0: that's right, if you're a single okay. person on assistance, yeah, uh, higher huh. rates if you're on disability.
1: Okay, what are the disability rates, do you know?
0: So that's uh, uh, 1183 and now that's going to be supplemented by another 300 and higher rates if, if there are children as well. Okay, this I is, don't this have is those some, numbers right in front
1: of me. Right. This is something that a lot of people had flagged this in the last few days about what about assistance for especially disabled British, British Columbians. Werner Antweiler, what do you think of these measures?
8: Yeah, I think uh, all governments are scrambling to find ways to help those in need and identifying those groups that are most affected by this crisis. And it's novel territory. There was nothing that prepared our governments for this. So I think there's uh, a learning uh, that happens very quickly here. Um, it's, uh, measures, uh, that are rolled out both at the federal level and the provincial level. Um, maybe what is hard to do now is a coordination because some of these measures are overlapping. Uh, but, uh, most of the weight, uh, is coming here from the federal government because they have the financial resources to, uh, to borrow, uh, more so than the provinces. And that means that, uh, um, they're looking mostly to the, the federal government to, to, uh, provide income assistance for those who are losing the job, uh, using uh, um, the uh, emergency benefits that are not available, uh, looking at ways to keep people employed and, and uh, providing great subsidies uh, during that time uh, for people who work in short hours. Uh, all these measures are, are coming together, but the provinces uh, don't really have the resources uh, quite as much as the federal government.
5: Do you
1: think, Werner, do you think that the governments are doing the right, right thing here? Obviously, we're in, in a crisis, but the money that just seems to roll out on a daily basis is in billions and billions of dollars is obviously going to add to the country and the province's debt level. Is that something we should just not worry about right now as we get through, get through this crisis? It, like you're a business guy, an economics guy. Is this the right thing to do? Just, just roll the money out, and not and worry about it later.
8: Yeah, I think uh, we're in a very fortunate position here in Canada. Our debt-to-GDP level has been historically quite low. Um, it, it, we had like uh, a situation in the 1990s where our uh, federal our debt-to-GDP was uh, in excess of 6%, and now we're down to 31%. So we have room to borrow. Uh, we, we can do that, uh, unlike uh, other nations that uh, are much more indebted. Uh, so in that sense, uh, we are in this very, very fortunate situation that both the federal government as well as most provincial governments are in a position to, to borrow money uh, and, uh, and figure out ways in the future how to pay it back. Eventually, we'll get the bill for all of this, but uh, for now, it's important to keep uh, uh, people, um, uh, the resources they need and, and make sure we're getting through this crisis. And we, we really can't worry about a lot of the financial issues later. Uh, B.C. also has a very low... Uh, debt to GDP ratio at the provincial government, uh, less so than many other provincial governments. We have better than Ontario uh, and, and Quebec in that way. Uh, and so, again, uh, I, I'm also not worried about the province of BC here in particular. Uh, here in BC, we are at one of the lowest levels of the combined federal and provincial debt uh, uh, in, in, uh, in all of Canada. So, we, we do have the ability to uh, rely on money that we can borrow and make sure that uh, we get it to the people who need it right now.
1: Alex Hemingway, do you agree?
0: I would agree with Warner on that. And not only do we have the the room to, to spend as necessary right now, and that's so critical on a human level, Uh, In terms of our medium and longer term economic health, uh, it's going to pay off better in economic terms uh, 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 in the long term to meet people's needs now and avoid the uh, economic uh, pain and and destruction of jobs and and, uh, uh, many more consequences that would reverberate for many years if we don't take care of people's needs.
1: Okay, like on that point, are you saying that if governments can spend aggressively right now, let's forget about the debt, worry about that later. But if you can keep people's heads above water, whether it's through income assistance, whether it's, it's, uh, tax, tax relief, tax deferment, uh, the payroll subsidy that the federal government brought out, 75% extraordinary, that, that helps us. That'll help in the recovery later. Like if you, if you can sort of manage the damage now, then we're in better position to recover when this whole nightmare is over.
0: Absolutely, yeah. That that's a critical part of this, and there are different elements to it. You know, with the federal wage subsidy program, we're seeing, you know, one of the things that helps do is maintain that employment relationship between employees and employers, so that the you know the economy can start firing on on all cylinders again once we get on the other side of uh, the crisis.
1: Werner, what about that debt, though? I, I saw I saw a tweet from Christy Clark about a, a week ago, the former BC premier. I, I think she deleted it later, but she was basically saying, okay, we got to do this. She wasn't disputing that government should be spending and helping people right now. We have to do it in this crisis, but she was lamenting the debt that's going to be piled up and left for our kids. I mean, do you think that's kind of, how How do you analyze that kind of argument? Like th- that, unfortunately the debt is going to be piled on our children. Is that a right way to look at it?
8: I wouldn't say it's piled on our children. It is something that we will of course have to deal with in the, in the future. Uh, but, uh, that will come through economic growth. Uh, that we can pay some of this back. Uh, As we did in the 1990s, we have climbed down from a very high debt-to-GDP level in the 1990s. Uh, We can do that. Uh, That is not something I'm worried about, and that comes from uh, setting the conditions right for the economy to prosper and grow, and that means, and as Alex pointed out correctly, it's, it's really a matter of keeping people in their work contracts, making sure that people can return to work uh, in the best position possible to to, to earn income and spend it and, and put it back into the economy. So for this, it's really important that uh, uh, we, we also... Um, uh, put that money that is now missing in the economy there to, to uh, be there when we can spend it, when we can go and, uh, and grow ourselves essentially out of this recession again. Uh, we're going to have a recession this year, there's no doubt about it, uh, but we, we have to basically set the stage uh, for enabling people to get out of the situation and, and uh, restore the economy to health. And for this, we need people back in employment.
1: Okay, talking about the BC, the BC and the Canadian economy here during this pandemic. My guests, Alex Hemingway and Werner Antweiler. Uh, Alex, when we t- there's a lot of optimism. I think that when this is over, the economy will rebound. Do you kind of share that sort of long term faith that this that will get will survive this and will bounce back from it, or is there danger of a more prolonged recession or even worse?
0: Well, I think there's a kind of middle ground there. We should be concerned and and planning for that uh, bounce back, making medium-term economic plans to uh, uh, ramp up uh, investment when uh, people are able to go back to work in in public health terms. Uh, You know, this is an unusual type of recession in the sense that we're uh, asking people to stay home from from work on a mass scale in many cases, so I don't think we can be complacent. But you know, we're we're uh, uh, an extremely uh, wealthy society with with a, uh, uh, you know a, uh, in many ways a strong economy. Certainly, gaps that existed in there uh, uh, beforehand, but we certainly have the ability uh, to to bounce back, and uh, we just need to be ready, making sure that uh, people can meet their needs. Needs now, and uh, and also be ready with a program of uh, uh, public investment as necessary uh, when people are able to go back to work to make sure uh, we can get that economy well, keep, firing keep on until sp- it's cylinders sp- and meet key needs.
1: Look, keep spending. Keep spending even when it's over.
0: Uh, in, until we're uh, yeah, absolutely. Until uh, we're uh, have the account- economy ramp back up again. Essentially, when people aren't. Uh, able to you know on the other side of this we need to get people back to work uh, and uh, if they're not in work we're uh, wasting those economic uh, uh, resources so if that means public spending uh, to both meet social needs and uh, uh, get the economy ramped up that's going to uh, be what makes
8: sense both in social yeah. and economic terms.
1: Okay Werner what about that? Do you need that stimulative spending even later?
8: Yeah that is something you'll have to see when, uh, when the economy sort of restarts uh, we probably will have to shift to spending, first of all. Um, it won't be income support as people are returning to work, but uh, uh, we, we may have a situation where expectations have changed. And that means uh, if you don't see enough investment from businesses and hesitancy and liquidity problems in businesses that uh, we, we just don't see what we would usually have in terms of uh, the investment level, we may need the uh, government to step in and, and kick-start it for some time. Uh, okay. it 's not that we have not enough uh, infrastructure deficit that uh, could be fixed in our country uh, yeah. that uh, we, we can certainly uh, rule out a program to stimulate the economy during that critical transition phase until it 's fully back on its own feet. That may take some time um, and uh, it will require some some thinking about what needs to be done uh, quickly that um, uh, that money actually really uh, goes into the economy. some of the um, uh, the projects that can be um, uh, focused on by uh, federal and provincial governments, uh, they are much longer term, uh, but uh, um, where we uh, need money uh, to, to restart the economy. Some of it will come from the, the central bank by keeping interest rates low. That they will certainly do. Uh, they have also uh, provided uh, liquidity for the provincial uh, governments that are in, in uh, more serious conditions like Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm. through quantitative easing, they buying back some of uh, uh, the debt and uh that that will provide liquidity also for provincial governments to uh to to help uh, the local economies uh find ways to um get back on their feet.
1: Okay, I'll jump in there guys. Yeah, Newfoundland is in terrible shape right now. I I guess it, looking at the situation in BC, I guess we can be We can be a little grateful for the better position that we're in here right now. Newfoundland going through a world of pain here right now. As we continue talking about the economy as we get through the COVID-19 crisis, some of the government assistance that's uh, rolling out. Another big announcement today, this one from the B.C. government with a $300 a month crisis supplement for the next three months. That's for anyone on disability or income assistance. So these low-income British Columbians, uh, disabled British Columbians, low-income seniors, an extra three hundred dollars a month for the next three months. My guest, Alex Hemingway, Canadian Centre Policy Alternatives, Werner Antweiler from UBC. Your calls to them: star ninety-eight ninety-eight on your cell. Let's go to James on the open line. Hey, James.
2: Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my
8: call. Sure. I'm a tradesman and I've been affected a little bit by this, not by not getting laid off. They restricted the amount of trades coming onto site, so it reduces my time on a site. But my my question to the panel is why didn't Trudeau just do a, a mass restriction and allow anyone that's been uh, affected by this by losing their jobs a moratorium order to the banks for mortgages and stuff like that? And that wouldn't have taken care of the problem for. The homeowners and for any renters that are renting from them because there would be no cost incurred and just do a blanket subsidy for everybody in the country that's lost their jobs. It would reduce the amount of debt. It would reduce the amount of paperwork. And they could make an agreement between the provinces for what percentage they have. And and it just seems like they're just spending more money on on paperwork than they are actually doing anything.
1: Okay, thanks for the call. Alex, could this be
0: simplified? Well, one thing I, I do worry about in terms of we, we do see uh, the federal government uh, sort of encouraging and partnering with the banks uh, to allow uh, six months mortgage deferrals, but it's a voluntary program. I think uh, I think we need stricter regulation to make sure uh, folks struggling with their mortgages can actually access that. And it, it is the case, you know, that for for renters, we're seeing uh, uh, still gaps in the system. We have a $500 uh, uh, rent supplement that'll be available to some British Columbians uh, who are renting. That's, that's good news, and, and no other province is doing that. But in, a, in, in a, particularly in, here in the Lower Mainland region, where rents are uh, as high as they are, uh, many folks are still going to have uh, real trouble making rent. So, okay. Uh, you know, yeah.
1: Okay, Werner, let me get your take on that, especially around the banks. I got a call yesterday from, from a caller on the show who said that she's been laid off, her husband's been laid off, they went to the bank, asked for a deferral on their mortgage, and were turned down. And the reason was the bank expected them to use their savings to pay their mortgage payments. Is that reasonable, or do you think the bank should be giving people more of a break? Well, um,
8: I guess every case is different. We've got one, minute. We got one minute,
1: we got one minute left. Go ahead.
8: Yeah. So I think uh, um, the the federal government has avoided uh, trying to regulate because. Uh, the banks usually have much better information about their clients and their particular ability to to service debt or uh, defer it. And I think a case-by-case solution that's customized for each client is probably better than some uh, government uh, trying to to regulate it uh, precisely uh, without having all that information. But, uh, of course, it still leads to unfortunate outcomes where uh, banks are showing less flexibility than they probably should.
1: Alex, 30 seconds. What what about the banks? Do you think the banks should be more helpful? I'm sure you think that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, no, there's, there's no doubt about it. And we know, you know, we have a, a banking sector in this country that is incredibly profitable. So, you know, we, we should be seeing generosity there, but we can't bank on, uh, forgive the pun, we can't bank on that generosity, which is why okay. I think we need a more regulatory approach.
1: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Alex Hemingway, Canadian Center Policy Alternatives, Werner and Twyler, UBC. Leave me a voicemail if you didn't get through. Phone the buzz line 604-331-2899. May play it later. As we continue to cover and analyze the COVID-19 pandemic, we all know who the heroes are in this fight against this virus. It's the frontline healthcare workers. One of the wonderful things that we've seen as the community and people respond to this crisis is the outpouring of support for people who are bravely putting their own health on the line to keep people healthy and to save people and treat people in hospital. The frontline healthcare workers are the heroes here. I love the 7 o'clock shout out that people are doing. People banging pots and pans, blowing whistles, making noise right at 7 o'clock. That's caught on in our street where I live. Every night, 7 o'clock, people are out in their driveways making noise, clapping, blowing whistles, banging on those pots and pans. It's awesome. And I really think it's a nice way to see your neighbors too and at least wave across the street until we get back to normal here. And I think it's a wonderful show of support for our frontline healthcare workers. But let's talk about some other ways that people are helping out our frontline healthcare workers. Imagine if you were a nurse or a doctor and you're treating people that are infected with this virus, and then you're going home to your own families. Imagine the worry, the concern, the anxiety you might have that you've been infected at work and you're bringing it home to your families. For a lot of frontline healthcare workers, they're really worried about that. I've heard stories about people sleeping in garages because they want to be separated from their families so their family members don't get sick. Check this out now. It's a lot of uh, a, a BC hotel chain uh, reaching out to help those healthcare workers with uh, offers of free hotel rooms. It's the Accent Inns chain. Let's check in now with Trina Notman. She is the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for Accent Inns. Hi, Trina. Hi. This is fantastic. I love it. How many uh, Accent Inns are are in BC? There's a a lot of uh, Accent Inns around, right? We have five. Oh, you have five. Okay, I thought it was more than that. Okay, where are you you located? Where are the Accent Inns located?
7: We're in Victoria, Richmond, Burnaby, Kelowna, and Kamloops.
1: Okay, that's great. Tell me about this program now to help frontline healthcare workers. How did this all get started?
7: Oh, it all got started from a call we received from a nurse, you know, much like your story about sleeping in garages. This nurse that called us was on the verge of tears on the phone and told us that some nurses were sleeping in their cars so they don't take their virus home to their elderly parents, their children. Um, many of them were working 14-hour days with only a short time between shifts, um, and they really needed a place to, to get some real rest between shifts and keep their families safe. So we were, we were like other hotels, you know, we were on the verge of thinking about closing our doors. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as we got this call, we, we realized, hey, we're really needed here. And we put together a rock bottom rate for essential service workers, and we got it out to as many healthcare professionals and essential service workers as we could. And but what surprised us, and but the real magic is here is once it hit the media, we were flooded with calls from our community members who wanted to pay for part of a stay for an essential worker. And that was just so inspiring to us.
1: Right. So you've partnered up with, is it the United Way?
7: Yep. The United Way of Greater Victoria came to our rescue.
1: Wow. You got to love the United Way. They're, they're always there. They do awesome work. So tell me how this is working now.
7: Oh, so fantastic. So within a 24-hour period, the United Way set up the Hotel for Frontline Workers Fund within um, a, a different fund than they're currently running in response, to the, in, in response to the coronavirus called Local Love in a Global Crisis. So we're part of that bigger campaign, and now people can donate directly to these stays. They can just either call us, go on, or go online to Accent Inns uh, Backslash Essential Services to uh, to donate. And also, if you are a frontline worker and you do need a need stay, please give us a call. We're we're in a good position to help you.
1: Okay, you got a phone number there. If a frontline healthcare worker is listening right now and they think like, yeah, I could use a place to stay.
7: Yeah, it's one eight hundred six six three zero two nine
1: eight one eight hundred six six three zero two nine eight so how much money has been raised so far to provide these rooms
7: um, about fifty thousand dollars
1: wow okay
7: yeah it's been amazing and, and another great thing to come out of this is the unexpected support from communities like for Burger Lounge at our Victoria Accent Inn, an amazing restaurant, oh,
9: yeah. uh,
7: offered to, offered to give a free meal to every frontline worker in the hotel wow. every day the, every day of their stay. Well, those are we good have, burgers. Oh, they're such good burgers. Oh,
1: those and are we like te- the best burgers I've, I've eaten there before. <laughs> that's a good deal.
7: You know it. Yeah. And then uh, also teachers with children who want to write letters for these workers, people who want to bring by flowers, like there's just all this unexpected stuff popping up that's just so heartwarming. Okay,
1: fifty thousand dollars raised so far. How many hotel stays can that uh, provide?
7: Oh my gosh! You're going to make me do math. I can't possibly. <laughs> okay,
1: okay. Never mind. Never mind. It's lots. It's lots. Yeah. Yes. It's lots. What kind of stories are you hearing from the from the people from the frontline healthcare workers who are who are you know? I'm sure they're grateful for something like this. What What are their stories? What do they say? Oh, telling you, you?
7: You, I saw a comment in a private um, nurses Facebook group that just blew me away. Um, and just made me so happy that we were able to help her or or him. I'm not sure, but uh, they said that they were nervous to call because they didn't want to ask for a handout, and they knew it wasn't safe for them to be at home. But they also couldn't afford to pay rent twice to self isolate. You know, pay our rate and then pay pay their rent as well. Um, but so they were all just ridden with anxiety about it. But then when they called, they got so much warmth from us. They were instantly relieved. Now they, and, and they even said, I won't be away from my family. I'll be with a new family. <laughs> wow, okay. and that's pretty amazing.
1: This pandemic has been brutal on the hotel business. I'm sure. What is, what kind of, uh, what is accent Ins going through here?
7: Well, you know, like I said, before we got this call, we were really considering closing our doors. We we're considering laying off about 75% of our staff. And that's, That's the story for hotels right across the country. This has been devastating. Um, With this program, we're able to hire back some of our staff, which is really nice, um, to service all these essential care workers that are going to be in our hotels.
1: Okay, that's awesome. I'm I'm sure that... Okay, is there any kind of cleaning protocols going on?
7: Have you doubled down on the cleaning in the hotels? Oh, oh yes. We have doubled down on the cleaning protocols for sure. We We have a very extensive list of COVID cleaning protocols, but then also... When a guest checks in under um, a rate like this, there's also a letter that they receive that outlines sort of our expectations of them and what they can expect from us. Because of course, if somebody's trying to self isolate, you know, we don't want them coming into the lobby. We want as minimal touch points as possible. Right. So yeah, we've taken very strict, uh, very strict uh, protocols for this.
1: Okay, like a, like you said, a lot of hotels they've been devastated. Hotel chains. There's just been massive layoffs of hotel workers. Something like this, is, it's interesting, you're helping helping—you're helping uh, frontline healthcare workers for sure, which is awesome, but in, in, it, it sounds like you're also helping your own employees just to kind of stay on the job a bit too, right?
7: Well, and that's it, because these rooms truly are at cost. Um, yeah. So it's just, but it's just, and, and, and running a hotel at cost right now is pretty good, because other, otherwise you'd just be closing your doors. So the fact that we can continue to pay employees is, is the thing that's really important to us.
1: Right. Okay. So if people want to donate, Trina, is there a website where they can go online and donate?
7: Yep. Go to accentins.com forward slash essential services.
1: Right. Right. Accentin.com. Okay. And the number again for frontline healthcare workers, any nurses, doctors, other frontline healthcare workers listening out there was thinking like, yeah, maybe a hotel room would be good to protect my family. Give me the number again.
7: 1-800- 6630298 Trina
1: thanks for coming on.
7: Thanks so much Mike.
1: Have a good okay, day. Okay, you bet. Thank you same to you. That's Trina Notman. She is the Vice President Marketing and Communications for Accent Inns in British Columbia. I think that is great the, this company banding uh, teaming up with the United Way here to provide hotel rooms for frontline healthcare workers. That is awesome. All right. Welcome back to the show. Earlier this week, we talked a lot about the restaurant industry. Man, there's another industry that's getting absolutely hammered here during this pandemic. You talk about the widespread shutdown and layoffs in that industry. Wow. It's just brutal. And a lot of restaurants have transitioned to takeout and delivery to try and keep their head above water and survive and get through this thing. But I'll tell you, it's tough in this business because it's a, it's a time sensitive. Uh, cash flow business, they kind of cash in, cash out. You start missing that cash flow. It's really tough for a lot of restaurants to hang on. CKNW contributor Claire Allen has been taking a closer look at the restaurant business. Hey, Claire.
9: Hey, Mike. Yeah, you're right. It's been a really tough time for the restaurant industry. And I know you spoke to a lot of restaurant owners here in British Columbia the other day just about how their business model has had to shift and the reality that they have a major loss of income, a major loss of business. Um, but earlier today, Restaurants Canada released uh, the results of a survey which looked at the national and provincial numbers of job losses uh, impacted by the pandemic. I spoke with uh, Mark von Shelwitz. He's the vice president of the Western Division of Restaurants Canada about the amount of job layoffs in the restaurant industry due to COVID-19.
10: Nationally, from our survey of over 13,000 businesses, we uh, estimate that uh, 800,000 food service jobs have already been lost uh, due to COVID-19. And in British Columbia, that equates to about 121,500 jobs in B.C. alone. uh, That might not be able to uh, return if current conditions continue this way because, uh, you know, we've got uh, many, many restaurateurs that are struggling to pay their rent and other bills in April that are due. Uh, with no income to pay them, so uh, certainly we're hearing from many, many members that uh, uh, you know we already have nine percent of our members that are closed their doors permanently, and uh, within the next thirty days, another eighteen percent of our members that's several thousand businesses that will be closed and and uh, you know the one hundred and twenty one thousand five hundred employees that are laid off won't have jobs to come back to unless they can find a way. Uh, to through working capital and through some non evictions and and some some flexible arrangements with landlords to to ensure that uh, uh, you know these employees have jobs to come back to because uh, really it's going to be very difficult for a lot of restaurateurs to survive the next couple of months.
1: Wow, eight hundred thousand people across the country, Claire. Wow, that's a yeah. lot of people out of work. <laughs>
9: That's a lot of people, and as he said, the amount of people that have lost their jobs in BC alone that were in the food service industry is uh, one, 121,500 people. Wow. So he also, you know, the the survey revealed some other alarming statistics, Mike. He said, um, across Canada, four out of five restaurants have laid off employees since March 1st. Seven out of ten food service operators will further cut back on staff hours or lay off more employees if conditions do not approve. And as you heard him mention at the end there, 18 percent of restaurants will permanently close within a month if conditions continue. So those are national statistics, uh, but you know we've been hit really hard here in BC. And so I asked Mark what these layoffs in the restaurant industry will mean to our province's GDP, and here's what he said:
10: It's about five percent of the province's GDP. As I mentioned, the fourth, third largest private sector employer, and you know we also are. Uh, huge contributors to indirect jobs as well that are related to the industry, and thinking about our different suppliers, whether they be uh, you know seafood or, or poultry, so the BC agriculture community has also now got a lot fewer um, sources of revenue as well, so there's the whole trickle effect of our industry as well. And I think a lot of your listeners probably, I don't think, understand just how important our industry is to the British Columbia economy. As the third largest private sector employer. Uh, you know, we're uh, a huge uh, multi-billion dollar industry. And when you see just a loan that our profits are going to go down in three months by $3 billion, well, that also impacts tax revenues for government as well, because they're not getting uh, the taxes on those sales. So uh, so it's a significant uh, a hit to our economy.
1: That's a huge part of the BC economy there, Claire.
9: Yeah, Mike. So just to expand a little bit on what Mark was talking about yeah. there, he gave me some really interesting figures about you know the restaurant industry's impact on BC's GDP. So the BC restaurant industry is a $14 billion a year industry. And it makes up 5% of our province's GDP, as you heard Mark say. The uh, restaurant industry in BC employs 192,000 employees directly and then 41,000 employees indirectly, like you heard Mark say, agriculture, seafood, you know, uh, industries like that. And, uh, so the industry purchases $5 billion worth of food and beverages every year. And one thing I found fascinating is that our BC restaurant industry serves approximately 3.4 million people every single day. So obviously that number has been dramatically reduced due to this pandemic and, um, I asked Mark what restaurants Canada would like the federal and provincial government to do, and he would right. like them to strengthen actions to ensure the recovery, ensure a recovery of the industry in the future.
10: Most importantly, and over the last few days, what I've heard mostly is, geez, we need some way to uh, to get uh, uh, some sort of a break from our landlords in order to uh, keep in business. Otherwise, if we have to pay a full amount of our lease costs, uh, we're just going to shut our doors a lot quicker. And of course, the biggest thing with no income is we need access to some sort of a working working capital so that we can pay these fixed costs uh, until we can start up again once the social distancing measures are lifted and again, help us with our employees, help uh, ensure that uh, they have jobs to come back to and uh, that we can take care of our staff as well. And One of the issues that we need from government as well is an extension of the temporary layoff period so that uh, they don't become permanent layoffs, which triggers a whole bunch of vacation pay and severance and things like that. So, um, you know, those are amongst the things that we've been asking for government uh, for help on. And I guess another point that I'd make uh, in a lot of conversations with members is um, it's all great that we can borrow more money but it's a, such a low-margin industry with pre-tax profitability of less than 5%. Uh, so it takes a long time to pay back all these debts. And a lot of these companies already have debt, and they're just worried about delaying the inevitable if all of a sudden they're taking on a lot more debt, which is due uh, at some point in the future. And that includes all the tax deferrals and things like that as well. So primary number one thing, rent relief. Number two, access to working capital. And number three, more support to help us uh, ensure that we have employees that uh, can come back to work uh, once uh, the social distancing measures are lifted.
9: And so, Mike, our listeners have heard this message before. But again, if you can help support BC's restaurant industry, you can do so by ordering takeout, delivery and also buying a gift card to use once the social distancing measures have concluded.